Welcome to Veterans for Responsible Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Jason Belcher. I'm an Iraq veteran and a former Air Force officer. This week, we're going to be talking about the 1-6 committee hearings. And with us, our guest is Mr. Glenn Schatz, who is the vice president of VFRL and a Naval Academy graduate, former Submariner, I believe, if I have that right. If I don't, please correct me, but uh, welcome. No, that's right. That's right. Thanks, Jason. Great to be here. Thanks for, uh, for doing this. Great. No, no problem. Do you, do you want to tell us just a little bit about your background and, and your role with VFRL? Sure. Happy to. Um, so, as you mentioned, I'm a, I'm a former uh, submariner. I uh, was a Naval Academy graduate, uh, went into the submarine force, uh, did a few deployments um, during my sea tour. I, I went back to teach at the Naval Academy uh, for my shore tour. I actually taught the introduction to American government there, as well as a course on energy policy. Got out of the Navy after about seven and a half years, still still a reservist, um, but uh, I've been in the private sector, mostly in the in the energy sector uh, and, and tech sector since I got out of the Navy. I, I joined VFRL in 2017, very early on, when it was kind of a gleam in Dan's eye, and I've been with him ever since, uh, taking various leadership positions within the organization. So, uh, you know, I've been there since since almost the beginning. It's a pretty important uh, part of of what I think I do, you know, as part of my volunteer work. And so, um, you know, happy to talk more about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thanks to everyone on the VFRL team uh, for helping run the organization. I think what it's doing is fantastic. And today we wanted to talk about the uh, the 1-6 committee hearings and the significance of that. So I'll, I'll just open it up. Uh, you know, what are your opening kind of big picture thoughts on what you've seen and heard so far coming from that uh, committee? You know, it's interesting. I, I try to look back on, on why we started VFRL back in 2017. And what's sad is, you know, everything that happened on 1-6 is the culmination of all the things that we were trying to prevent and, and kind of failed to prevent, um, you know, or, or, you know but, but I think that we did identify the threat. And I think what the 1-6 committee has done it has made the threat that, that we all saw, you know, five, six years ago. Um, especially around veteran extremism, and uh, really painted the picture for the American people. And I think that viewership, from what I understand, has been been really good. And what I'm hoping is that now that the threat is more apparent to people and coherent in a, in a way that people can understand better, that they'll be more attuned to the message that we have of, of understanding that this is not just a partisan fight. This is really a, a battle for the future of this country. No, I absolutely agree. And, you know, just thinking back on it, I mean, I can remember just watching uh, the actual 1-6. The first thing that actually happened for me was I got a message from a family member saying, hey, someone's broken into the Capitol or someone's attacking the Capitol. And I, I thought, you know, they probably had seen something on the news or they were exaggerating uh, just for effect. You know, I, at first I didn't really, I guess I didn't really believe or I didn't really want to believe uh, that that was literally happening. Uh, and then when I started watching and saw that they were right and that that was what was going on, I, I was just kind of astonished. Um, it, it was just shocking for me to see that he, happen here in the United States. That, that's the type of thing, you know, we've seen happen overseas in other, other countries. Um, I never, ever imagined I would live to see it happen here in the United States. So you're absolutely right. Yeah, I don't want to conflate the two issues, but, you know, I'm trying to think of the number of times in my life where I've just been stuck and glued in front of a TV. And I think it probably was one six um, and, and the emotion that I had was sadness. Um, the, t the time before that was 9-11 and uh, the emotion that I had there was confusion and then anger. Um, that was when I was in the Naval Academy. And then 
I think probably before that, the OJ, uh, <laughs> the, the OJ chase was probably the only other thing I could think of that, you know, where, hey, I'm just stuck in front of a TV trying to figure out what's going on. Um, so, you know, it doesn't, have, doesn't come around too, too frequently. Yeah, I remember I was actually, a, uh, I just, I was a, a first lieutenant uh, on 9-11 on active duty, and I was out with an AWAC squadron in uh, Tinker in Oklahoma City, and I, really the same thing happened. I, you know, everybody has this image of the military, like we have, we all go to some secret bunker and get this amazing briefing that tells us everything, but that's not, <laughs> that's not what really happens. We, we watch the news and listen to things and try to figure out what the heck's going on, just like everybody else, and, and on that day, that's what we were doing. Uh, so, yeah, I, I definitely remember that very clearly, too. Um, with respect to one... Yeah, so, go ahead, sorry. No, I was just going to say, so, so you know, I, I think that the, the thing that I've really appreciated about the committee is how they haven't, you know, a lot of congressional committees, they, they just go into, you know, hours and hours and hours of detail, which, you know, is all very important, but it's hard to keep people's attention. And I think that trying to have a high, higher production value for the hearings and breaking it up into consumable pieces of, you know, two to three hours at, at most at a time has been a really smart strategy. And, um, you know, I think that they've, re they've received some criticism for that because, you know, the Trumpists are, are saying, well, it's, you know, it's, it's a reality television show. But I don't think it is. I think they're just presenting the facts, but they're doing it in a way that makes it easier for the American people to understand. Yeah, and I mentioned this when I talked to Dan uh, in our first podcast. I, you know, the the one the, the importance of the one six committee hearing to me is that it's part of everything that they have gathered and have presented to the public is now officially part of the congressional record, the permanent record. So there's going to be a permanent record of the the information they gathered and, and the findings from it. So to me, that that is a degree of justice by itself. I certainly don't suggest it's a full measure, uh, but it is a degree of justice. And I think that's that's important that we get that in there so the future generations will have access to all that information because the 1-6 committee has more intel, more data on this topic than anybody else. They've talked to more witnesses, they've gathered more uh, data, they've collected more information uh, than anyone. Uh, so that's, I think that's very important. And just with respect to the 1-6 committee, the details, as you mentioned, um, what's kind of jumped out at you as, as you went through this and listened to the, the committee hearings? What, what things have sort of leapt out at you that really deserve to be, uh, deserve to be talked about individually? So nothing that I've seen has been a terrible surprise. Um, you know, obviously, we've seen a lot of footage from the day of, uh, I think we've understood a lot about what the threat was, and even though there's been some footage that had never been shown before from the day, it was all part of a, a greater piece that I think was the story that I, I understood to be true. I think the biggest surprise was, um, and it shouldn't have been a surprise, but frankly, how uh, unengaged or disengaged the president was during this time. Um, how much his advisors seemed to try to get him to do something and he still wouldn't do anything. And to me, you know, again, there's not much you, you can tell me to make me think any, any less of, of the former president. Um, but, you know, that was really striking to me, just how, how checked out he was. And really, if it was up to him, I mean, he would have walked with his supporters down to the Capitol and, and taken it himself, which, you know, I, I think that in my mind, there was always a chance that that was the case, but but this really brought it to light in a in a very concrete way. Yeah, you know, to me that, um, and, and also the the activities of his. I, I don't. I, I agree with everything he said. I don't. Um, one thing I would add, 
the, the activities of his subordinates and his staff members uh, suggest to me, what at least the way we were taught it, uh, j- just some, some very basic leadership failures. Um, you know, when you have staff members who, who are trying their best just to please the boss, no matter what the other consequences may be or what the other ramifications may be, that, that suggests to me that you're, you're living or working in an environment that doesn't have the right priorities and doesn't have effective leadership. Um, you, you don't break the law uh, just to make the boss happy. You don't put the country in danger just to make the boss happy. But it seems to me from, from the testimony that there was, there was some of that going on there. Uh, so while he was, was certainly uh, the most powerful force behind what happened on 1-6, he wasn't alone. Um, and, and I think that the staff members that were, that were trying to find ways to help him get what he wanted are, are just as guilty as he is. Yeah, that's that's 100% true. And I think what is very interesting is that the, the folks that have come out uh, and, and spoken first, like, like Cassidy Hutchinson and, and, and others, that they were junior, right? And, and the amount of courage it took for them to come up uh, and, and, you know, and testify in public with their name behind it, I think I think that was courageous, especially for the more junior folks. I think what, what bothers me is what we've seen is after those first folks have come out, there's this like slow trickle of additional people coming out. And it speaks to the old you know, leadership uh, allegory or discussion about how it's not the leader that's the most important, it's the first follower. And, and that's what I think we're seeing here is more and more people are coming forward because someone took a stand. And I, I just wish that more people would have taken a stand you know, it, during the administration before 1-6 so we could have avoided 1-6 altogether. But even up until that date, up until you know that the election and after the election, if more people would have come up publicly, I think that we could have avoided it. Um, and you know, I think there's a um, a lot of folks in the administration who had tried to convince themselves that they were doing the right thing by you know being the adult in the room. But as we all saw, saw that you know no one was adult enough in the room to stop it from happening. So you know, I, to, to me, it really speaks to having the courage to come out and say something, say something publicly to put your name behind it, and then uh, hopefully people will follow in behind you. No, that's absolutely true. And, and you know, just, I'm just like you trying to imagine someone who, who you know, any job that you have that, that involves working in the White House. I mean, that's, that's a huge position with lots of responsibility and implications for almost everything you do. And for folks that are, that are in, they're junior and are fairly young and are new to a position like that, to go public, uh, as they have is in fact courageous, and it's it's probably not wrong to say that they may have faced physical security threats because of that. I, I don't think I've seen anything specific to that, but it it wouldn't surprise me if they dealt with uh, something like that uh, in the either either now or in the distant future or the near future, I should say. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure they have. I mean, I think that was part of the impetus behind keeping the identity secret of of Miss um, Hutchinson before she came out was because she was facing. Um, threats and you know I, I try to avoid the the toxic parts of the internet but um <laughs> so, sometimes you stumble across things and and even uh you know if you look at the response to liz cheney you look at the response to kinzinger i mean his threat his family's been threatened you know her family continues to be threatened so this is all you know very real and i think you know i am you know not trying to overplay that you know a lot of people say a lot of things on the internet that's, that's not real but all it takes is you know one crazy person to um, to really cause some damage. So 
uh, you know, I think would take those threats credibly. Of course, and there have been, you know, just in the past few years, incidents where either, you know, an elected official was actually harmed or nearly harmed uh, by someone who had made previous threats. So I, I agree they have to be taken seriously. I, I hope, you know, for, from a veteran's perspective, you know, this, this is one of the things that we, we just cannot tolerate in our country. It's unacceptable to threaten or, or to do violence against someone just because they have a different political view than you do. It's okay to disagree, and it's even okay to get into, you know, shouting matches or something. That That's just, that's democracy. That, that's going to happen. But but it's 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 outside the rules of, of uh, proper behavior uh, to threaten violence against someone just because you don't like their uh, their political stance. Yeah, and once you start having political violence, and I mean, basically it's the beginning of the end of any particular society, right? Because it just means that the the only thing that matters in those cases are our might and you know if, if that's all that matters it makes for a very dangerous place and yes we've seen that in afghanistan and iraq you know once you start once that violent cycle of violence gets going it self-perpetuates and, and you have score settling and revenge which take precedent over any type of discussion any kind of rational discussion about policy or governance, and that all becomes subordinate to whoever's going to win the next fight or who's going to knock off the next adversary. Uh, and so instead of a democracy, you just get chaos. Yeah, you know, I'm not a, I, I tend to view myself as a pretty even keeled guy, but, you know, I'm also not immune to um, some of the anger and frustration. And, you know, I can very easily see a world where, you know, if, if one side, is resorting to political violence, you know, other people that may be more even killed like me would feel, you know, the need to defend yourself or defend your family or your, your neighborhood or, you know, or, or, or whatever. And I could very easily see um, people who might not normally uh, be involved in violent activities feel like they're compelled to. And I'm not saying that this is it's good or bad. It's just, it's just how human nature is, right? Yes. You, know, you, you have to have safety. You have to have defense. And I think that, um, you know, it's not a future that I would look forward to um, where that would, would be the case. Yeah, and what I would say to folks who maybe, you know, have contemplated that uh, or are already thinking about it, you know, here's what I would say as, as a veteran. You know, don't die for the lie because that's the one thing this, this committee hearing has really brought to light is that the we, it was known that the election was not stolen. It was known that there wasn't any widespread fraud. Those facts were known well before one six ever happened, and yet uh, a dishonest president and his dishonest subordinates, in some cases, echoed those claims and got people stirred up, uh, which led to the one six attack. So I would just say, you know, don't die for the lie, because that's what it is. It's a lie. It's a lie that the election was stolen. It's a lie that there's widespread fraud, and people who are going around repeating that are still lying. Well, what kills me? I mean, so I'm, I grew up in Arizona, and so Arizona is is one of those states right now where the entire Republican Party is basically um, they have either they either believe in the lie or are not speaking up against it. If you look at the most recent primaries, and every one of the folks who won is basically a you know a one six truther. Um, you know, I think that they're you know you look at someone like Carrie Lake, who you know in in previous life when she was a newscaster was, you know, centrist, if not liberal, um, and is, in my mind, clearly just doing this to try to win. And that, that amount of cynicism, I think, is unforgivable, right? I actually feel a little bit bad for the folks who, who truly believe it, right? Because if you, if you put yourself in their shoes and they've been told that an election was stolen, I, I mean, you, you might consider standing up in a, in a more extreme way if you truly thought an election was stolen, right? Because in, in your mind, you would be standing up for democracy. 
but it's the people which I think make up the majority of the folks who are questioning the outcome of the election, especially the former president who, who knows better. Those are the people I think are the most dangerous because they're basically saying anything to win, and they're putting that above you know, the Constitution, they're putting that above our democracy. And so I, I hold those people m much, much more accountable for the position we're in than any of the folks who you know, happen to be caught up in the, in the news or, or just have been misled. And I think that's where the one six committee, in a way, is at its best or at its strongest when they've when they've been interviewing folks involved that, that give you you know in in very detailed way not just their opinion that that the twenty twenty election was free and fair but the but the actual supporting evidence to go along with it um, you know the Department of Justice took those claims of fraud seriously they 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 investigated those they spent a lot of time and, and resources tracking those down and reviewing physical evidence, interviewing witnesses, looking at audio-visual. And, and after, at the end of the day, after all of that was done, it was determined based on the evidence that, that there no fraud had happened. So for folks that still may be hearing that, you need to know that, that the facts are not on your side. The facts are that there wasn't any fraud, and, and that wasn't just blown off by the authorities. Um, they were taken seriously, and those investigations led to only one conclusion, and that is that there was no fraud. And that, that was communicated to then-President Trump. Repeatedly. Yep, and it was his. It was his Justice Department. It was his Attorney General, and in the states that there were the, the most uh, um, discussion about it in Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania. I mean, these were Republican Secretaries of State certifying the election. They were, you know, Trump-appointed judges in, in most cases that were um, that were you know, reviewing it and finding no no evidence of fraud. So you know, these aren't you know, um, far left folks that are just trying to trumpet the party line. These are, these are in most cases, Republicans who were standing up for what is right uh, at, at actually great personal costs in some cases. And, and I'd like to give just, I'm from Kentucky, so I, I want to give a quick shout out uh, to our Secretary of State, Mike Adams, who I ran against and I lost uh, back in 2019, but I, he's done a good job. You know, he's one of the voices of reason in the Republican Party, and he's, we've had folks here at the local level who have d d decided that they weren't going to accept uh, losing an election even when they lost by a mile, and they demanded recounts and, and uh, started making all kinds of ridiculous, you know, conspiracy claims. And, and to his credit, Secretary Mike Adams has done a good job of just sort of either, you know, shutting them down or saying, okay, fine, if you're going to pay for it, we'll go ahead and do the process, but there's, this is ridiculous, there's nothing to it, you lost, you have to just accept that, that's the Democratic way, and, and move on. So I, I think for other folks out there in the Republican Party who have done that, they, they deserve it, regardless of your affiliation, but for folks that have done that within their own party, and, and of course Adam Kinzinger comes to mind too, I think they deserve credit for, for taking that stand. Yeah, I agree, and I, I don't think it's a... Um coincidence that you know folks like Kinzinger and, uh, and and others that have some sort of service background um, have been I think uh, you know they, they've taken this oath to the Constitution for a very very long time and again one of the things that frustrates me the most is is folks that have you know have taken this oath to the Constitution uh, throughout their lives in service and, and are now um, you know basically giving all of that up for quick political expediency, and, and there are definitely folks like that in, in the House and Senate right now who, you know, I just uh, wish uh, wish would take that oath more seriously. No, I absolutely agree. I mean, it, it's clear when we raised our right hand, just, you know, you did the same thing I did. We, we swore that oath. It was to support and defend the Constitution. Uh, it was not to support and defend uh, a particular presidency if they lost an election. Um, I, I'm not saying that it's any fun to lose an election because it's not, and I'm not saying anybody has to ever like losing an election because they don't. Uh, but you do have to accept the outcome. 
Um, you know, that's one of the cornerstones of having a democratic system of governance is that the folks who lose accept their loss nonviolently. Uh, and if they have any other, you know, problems, they continue to seek redress in a peaceful manner. Uh, meaning, you know, they can, they can continue to, to say whatever they want to say or criticize whoever they want to criticize. That, that's fine. But we don't cross the line uh, into violence or threats of violence against someone just because they beat us in an election. Uh, that's that's outside the norm of, of democratic governance. That's anti-American. That's that's totally contradictory to our entire system of belief. So like you, I, I can't for the life of me fathom why anyone who took the oath of office would, would go along with that or even be part of something like that. I just, I can't imagine it. Yeah, I agree 100%. So, Jason, you know, as, as ahead, we're wrapping sorry. up, is, is there anything that you're that you're looking forward to any of the um, upcoming hearings? Um, we haven't really heard much about what's going to be talked about there, but is there anything that you think we're missing or, or you think that needs to be uh, brought up? I'm actually quite interested to see what their plan is for wrapping up. Um, I, you know, what I've seen so far is just a, a great deal more detail on the uh, what we suspected already. And they supplied us with the necessary facts to support um, what we thought before we started, you know, for, before we start started listening to the specifics. Um, I'm not sure how they're gonna, what they're gonna do with a, with a wrap up. I don't, I'm not sure if there's even agreement amongst the committee as to whether or not they're going to do a criminal referral. And I know for folks that are watching that, that's sort of one of the, you know, high publicity, high profile items. And I don't know how that's going to go. You know, presidents. You know, if you, if you study history, I'm, I'm a historian. Um, you know, presidents all the time get advice from their, their subordinates or advisors that's bad or wrong, and, and ultimately it's up to them to make the decision as to whether or not they listen. So just because somebody ignored their advisors, you know, that may be bad policy or, or a bad decision. That in and of itself is not criminal conduct. Um, I think there may be room in, in other, other things that have been brought up in the committee where, where a criminal case uh, could be made but not just because they ignored their advisors. And I, I sort of heard that a lot from the committee and I thought, well, okay, I mean, Kennedy ignored his advisors. I mean, other, other, plenty of presidents have ignored their advisors. So I mean, that, that's not in itself that unusual. Um, but I think the circumstances of this one are, and that, that if you had even a you know, modest understanding of how our government works and how the constitution is written, there, there shouldn't have been any doubt in your mind that, that claiming a, a victory that you didn't earn was, was contrary to all of that. So how the 1-6 the committee wraps that all up when they get to the, the finish line, um, I'm really not sure. What, what do you think they're, they're going to do? Yeah, I don't, I don't know, actually. And, you know, I think to the point of the criminal referral, frankly, to me, I, I don't think it matters. I think that the AG um, has enough information and continues to, to gather more information, um, as we're seeing with some of these prosecutions as they're making their way up the food chain. Um, you know, I think that there's a desire for this to be all, you know, solved and for, for a nice bow to be put on it. I, I don't think we're going to get that. Um, I think that you know, I, I do agree with Liz Cheney in her interview the other day. Uh, you know, if there is enough to criminally prosecute Trump, I don't think political considerations should be taken into account. I think you should just, you know, if you, if you think you have a case and you think you could win, you can view the prosecution. And then the political calculus after that is whether or not, you know, Biden would um, pardon him on, on some of that, which I think is a different conversation. But to, to me, I think the rule of law is, is what matters most. And so, you know, I, I think that, the attorney general should not be making too many political considerations when it comes to these prosecutions. I think that they should follow the facts where, where they lead them. As far as the committee, you know, I think that there is, 
I do have a concern that the longer this drags on, the less impact it will have. Um, I have to imagine that these are all very smart political actors, and so there, there may be something around the timing, right, where they want to start having the, the most impactful closing statements, you know, months before the election when people start paying attention. Um, I, I am a little bit worried about that, unless there is really something to deliver of them playing too much into the um, into the politics of it. Um, so my, my advice, you know, as a concerned citizen would be, if there's more, great, love to hear it. Um, if there's not, let's, you know, put a Put a bow on it, turn it over to the Attorney General, and, and see where those ships fall when, when the, all of that comes out. Yeah, and I agree. And, and re- regardless of whether or not there's a, um, a, a criminal probe, I think the committee has been effective in the arena of public opinion in convincing those who have watched and listened that the evidence that they have provided is solid uh, and substantial and that it paints a, a completely different picture of the events that both led up to the 1 6th attack and the uh, the underlying causes of it uh, to the American public than what was given by the by the previous administration by by the Trump administration. So, I think that in in that sense it's been effective. And if they continue to go on too long and, and people just you know tune it out or, or stop listening, I, I don't think that will be lost. I think the impact on public opinion will still be there. Uh, but they just may you know they may just lose folks who who say okay I've, yeah I've already I've heard what you have to say I agree you can you can stop now. Um, I don't know if they will because I'm, I'm not sure what else they've got uh, on their agenda. I don't know if there's any other bombshells. I mean, there have been quite a few uh, to me, uh, and it's really laid bare the extent that, that folks will go to to both weaponize and monetize disinformation. Um, it's been something that Trump has used to raise money, uh, and it's been something that's been used to attack political opponents. And so, you know, just like Alex Jones, you know, finally fesses up that that he lied about the whole thing. I mean, I just I, w- I wish we could get to the moment where, where pre- former President Trump just says, OK, yeah, I lied about the whole thing because I wanted to stay in power. I know we won't. Um, but but, to, but I'm not holding, not holding my breath on that. Yeah, I know that's never going to happen. But I just feel like if we could if, if that's what we could get to, then maybe we could put this. Uh, behind us, but I, I don't see that coming. Um, any thoughts on on how this will? Um, when you mentioned veterans and their role, um, do you think that the committee hearings have maybe poured some cold water on on folks out there who have a background in the military who who maybe had been you know willing to support uh, the the one sixth attack before, but maybe now they aren't. You know, I just don't know. I think it remains to be seen. What, what I'm hoping it does, though, is is mobilize folks who may have been maybe a little bit more politically apathetic to go out and vote, to go out and organize, um, to go be you know, poll watchers and, and to get involved. So I think that at the end of the day, I think the majority of the United States um, does believe in democracy and does believe in the Constitution and also knows that the election uh, was what it was and it wasn't stolen. But the problem is that not everyone shows up to vote. And so I think I, I am... You know, less interested in converting people. I hope I hope we can convert a few people, but but I'm I'm, I'm more interested in getting people who may um, you know be sitting on the sidelines out and mobilized and into the polls to vote. Well, I think a VFRL did play a role, um, at least in the Missouri race, where uh, their former governor, who's a, a, a former SEAL, actually ended up losing in their primary. I think he finished actually third in the primary. Uh, so, I, and I know VFRL, I know the president had made a, uh, the president of VFRL had made a, a pretty good, pretty nice video presentation uh, speaking out against uh, Greitens' former uh, ad where he pretends to be hunting his uh, political opponents. So I, I would see that at least as one victory. Um, 
even though it didn't work, like you said, the Arizona example, it's unfortunate to see that uh, outcome in the primary there. But it, but Missouri was a little bit of a different story, so that's that's some good news at least. Yeah, we're, we're very happy about that. I mean, you know, the fact that we had to put in a lot of work to um, to uh, to defeat someone as uh, as bad as Greitens I mean, kind of does speak to the political moment we're in, but, you know, we definitely popped a bottle of champagne when we saw the results of that election. Yeah, no, I, I did too, and I, I'm just, you know, I, to me, that that's one of those ex- examples that you look at as a, as a, a veteran, you go, how, I mean, how you know how lost in your way do you have to be um, to start uh, to start fantasizing? But even if it was meant, even if we accept the premise, which I don't, uh, that it was meant as some kind of satire or humor um, in the current environment, I mean that that's just uh, that's outside the bounds of uh, of the norms that we have. And I'm I'm glad that the voters in Missouri uh, saw through that and did not choose to make him the uh, the representative. So that that tells me there's some hope. Um, I know there's a lot of other battles that need to be fought, and there's a lot of other races that need to be looked at because you have to think about, you know, the one-six committee hearings. Once they're over, I mean, the, for the for the diehards who who refused, who still refuse to accept uh, the facts, uh, you know, what are they going to do once if if they get into elected offices? I mean, what kind of trouble are they going to cause, or what kind of damage might they do uh, once they get there? I mean, think about that. Yep. Well, um, you know. I, Unfortunately, this is not a, a battle that ever ends, right? So, you know, even even if we get through this moment and, and the committee wraps up the hearing, we still have an election in November. We still have 2024. You know, this is, a, you know, I, in my mind, a you know, 10-year battle to continue to turn the tide of authoritarianism that we've seen creep on. And, you know, it's not actually, obviously, the, the majority of that is on the right right now, but, but you do see a lot of, um, I would call, call it more illiberal, uh, tendencies also from from folks you know on parts of the far left um and really it's just a constant battle to to maintain the the experiment that we have right there's no guarantee that that america keeps going the way it is we're only 250 years old so um it's going to be a lot of work and that work is going to continue and hopefully vfrl can play a role as we as we move forward you're absolutely right you know they say the old saying a democracy if you can keep it um, and so I think that's one of the things I like about VFRL is that they're dedicated to keeping it. Um, and that, that's one of the objectives that the uh, organization has. So that's, that's why I'm glad to be uh, a part of it. And, and I appreciate uh, the work that folks like yourself are doing uh, with the organization on behalf of uh, our democratic ideals. And I, I appreciate the, uh, the time and uh, the conversation about the uh, 1-6 committee hearings, which are uh, historic. They, they will be things that, that kids study about uh, as they grow up uh, and future generations will read about. Um, it's it's a historic event, and it's something that they will remember. Um, any final thoughts or, or closing comments? Uh, no, I just appreciate uh, the time you spent today talking to me about this. I think that uh, you know we'll, we'll definitely have more to talk about after the next couple of hearings, and look forward to talking about it then. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much, and I hope the listeners uh, have a great day. And you can find VFRL online. You can go to the website or Facebook. Uh, www.vfrl.org or on Facebook, any other uh, social media platforms or uh, those type of uh, locations that folks can find us? Yeah, Twitter uh, is probably our most active account. Facebook actually has, uh, has shut, up, shut down our account kind oh, of in a okay. weird way, so we're going to probably have to relaunch that soon. Um, and uh, So Twitter is probably the, the best place to find us right now. Uh, following vfrl.org on Twitter, um, and we're going to relaunch our website soon with a with a new website. So vfrl.org on on the internet is also a good place. All right, sounds great. Thanks. 
Okay, it's great to have the Vice President for Veterans for Responsible Leadership on the show this week talking about the 1-6 committee hearings. You can find us online on our website or on Twitter. That's Veterans for Responsible Leadership. We thank all of the folks who are already part of VFRL for the work that they do. And uh, for folks who may be interested in joining or being a part of that effort, please, please feel free to look us up online or on Twitter. And we thank you for listening and hope you have a great day. Take care.